Racial melancholia, model minorities, depression, and suicide. I wondered if whiteness were contagious. If it were, then surely I had caught it. I imagined this condition affected the way I talked, walked, dressed, danced, and, at its most advanced stage, the way I looked at the world and at other people. Configuring whiteness as a contagion, Bertie Lee, the narrator of Dancy Senna's novel Caucasia, connects assimilation to illness and disease. Separated from her African-American activist father, Bertie and her blue-blooded mother flee from the law in racialized and radicalized Boston of the 1970s. Eventually, the two take up residence in New Hampshire, where Bertie passes as Jesse and for white. This assimilation into the whiteness of New Hampshire plagues Bertie, who wonders if she had actually become Jessie, and it was this girl, this Bertie Lee, who haunted the streets, searching for ghosts, who was the lie. This vexing condition of whiteness alters the narrator's physical existence, the manner in which Bertie walks, talks, dresses, and dances. Moreover, it configures the sphere of the affective, the ways in which Bertie ultimately apprehends the world and its occupants around her. Physically and psychically haunted, Bertie Jesse feels contaminated. This is the condition of racial melancholia. As noted in the introduction, part one of this book focuses on Generation X, largely second-generation and comparatively privileged Asian Americans attending public and private universities from the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s. Our psychoanalytic perspective is that of racial melancholia. This chapter is the outcome of a series of sustained dialogues on racial melancholia in which we engaged during the fall and winter of 1998. It was first published in 2000 as an article in the clinical journal Psychoanalytic Dialogues, and we have edited and updated it for publication here. As Freud's privileged theory of unresolved grief, melancholia presents a compelling framework to conceptualize registers of loss and depression attendant to social and psychic processes of immigration assimilation, and racialization. Freud typically casts melancholia as pathological. However, we are more concerned with exploring this psychic condition as a deep pathologized structure of being, to borrow a concept from Raymond Williams, describing emergent patterns of emotion still struggling for social reform and recognition. From this particular vantage, melancholia might be theorized in relation to our everyday conflicts and struggles, with experiences of racial exclusion and discrimination. Furthermore, even though Freud conceives of melancholia in terms of individual loss and suffering, we are equally interested in approaching melancholia as a collective psychic condition. More interested, that is, in addressing group identities and identifications. How might a focus on racial identifications and differences 
and psychoanalytic theory allow us particular insights on the history of Asian American subject in relation to the subject of history, to historical processes of immigration, assimilation, and racialization underpinning the formation of Asian American subjectivity. Freud's theory of melancholia provides a provocative model to consider how processes of assimilation work in the United States, and how the depression that characterizes much of contemporary culture for Generation X might be theorized in relation to race. In the United States today, assimilation into mainstream culture for people of color still means adopting a set of dominant norms and ideals. Whiteness, heteronormativity, middle-class family values, Judeo-Christian religious traditions. The exclusion from these norms, the reiterated loss of whiteness as an ideal, notably, establishes a melancholic framework for assimilation and racialization processes in the United States, precisely as a series of failed and unresolved integrations. Let us begin with Freud's essay, Mourning and Melancholia, in which he attempts to draw a clear distinction between these two psychic states through the question of successful and failed resolutions to loss. Freud reminds us at the start of his essay that mourning is regularly the reaction to the loss of a loved one or to the loss of some abstraction which has taken the place of one, such as one's country, liberty, an ideal, and so on. In some people, the same influences produce melancholia instead of mourning, and we consequently suspect them of a pathological disposition. Mourning, unlike melancholia, is a psychic process in which the loss of an object or ideal occasions the withdrawal of libido from that object or ideal. This withdrawal cannot be enacted at once. Instead, it is a gradual letting go. This withdrawal cannot... Libido is detached bit by bit, so that eventually the mourner is able to declare the object dead and to invest in new objects. In Freud's initial definition of the concept, melancholia is pathological precisely because it is a mourning without end. Interminable grief is the result of the melancholic's inability to resolve the various conflicts and ambivalences that the loss of the loved one effects. In other words, the melancholic cannot get over this loss, cannot work out this loss, in order to invest in new objects and ideals. To the extent that ideals of whiteness for Asian Americans and other people of color remain unattainable, Processes of assimilation are suspended, conflicted, and unresolved. The irresolution of this process places the concept of assimilation within a melancholic framework. Put otherwise, mourning describes a finite process that might be reasonably aligned with the popular myth of the American melting pot for dominant Western European ethnic groups, whose various differences are legally, socially, and psychically forged into an ideal of whiteness. In contrast, melancholia describes an unresolved process 
that might usefully describe the compromised immigration and assimilation of Asian Americans into the national fabric. The suspended assimilation, the inability to blend into the American melting pot, suggests that for Asian Americans, ideals of whiteness are perpetually strained, continually estranged. They remain at an unattainable distance, at once a compelling fantasy and a lost ideal. In configuring assimilation and melancholia in this particular manner, it is important to challenge Freud's contention that melancholia ensues from a pathological disposition, that it emerges from the disturbance of an intrasubjective psychopathology rather than the disruption of an intersubjective relationship. In our analysis, the inability to get over unattainable ideals of whiteness is less an individual than a collective social transaction. Neil Gotanda notes that Asian Americans are racially precisely as foreign, or racialized precisely as foreign. U.S. mainstream society typically perceives Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners largely based on physiognomy, on skin color and physical markings. Despite the fact that they may be native-born, or however long they may have resided in the country, or whatever their official legal status, Asian Americans are continually viewed as eccentric to the nation. Whether depicted as menacing yellow peril or applauded as model minorities, Asian Americans are cast as an economic threat and hyperproductive automatons, and hence pathological to the U.S. nation-state. In either scenario, mainstream refusal to see Asian Americans as part and parcel of the American melting pot is less an individual failure to blend in with the collective, rather than a legally and socially sanctioned interdiction. Even Freud suggests in his essay that melancholia may proceed from environmental influences rather than internal conditions that threaten the existence of the object or ideal. Freud goes on to delineate the debilitating consequences of melancholia. When faced with unresolved grief, the melancholic preserves the lost object or ideal by incorporating it into the ego and establishing an ambivalent identification with it, ambivalent precisely because of the unresolved and conflicted nature of this forfeiture. From a slightly different perspective, we might say that ambivalence is precisely the result of the transformation, an intersubjective conflict into an intrasubjective loss, as the melancholic makes every conceivable effort to retain the absent object or ideal, to keep it alive in the shelter of the ego. However, there are tremendous costs of maintaining this ongoing relationship to the lost object or ideal are psychically damaging. Freud notes that the distinguishing mental features of melancholia are a profoundly painful dejection, cessation of interest in the outside world, loss of the capacity to love, inhibition of all activity, 
and the lowering of the self-regarding feelings to a degree that finds utterance in self-reproaches and self-revilings and culminates in a delusional expectation of punishment. In identifying with the lost object, the melancholic is able to preserve it, but only as a type of haunted, ghostly identification. That is, the melancholic assumes the emptiness of the lost object or ideal, identifies with this emptiness, and thus participates in his or her own self-denigration and ruination of self-esteem. Freud summarizes the distinction between mourning and melancholia in this oft-quoted remark. In mourning, it is the world which has become poor and empty. In melancholia, it is the ego itself. He contends that melancholia is one of the most difficult psychic conditions to confront and to cure, as it is largely an unconscious process, one in which the significance of the lost object remains unconscious and opaque. To reprise our citation from the opening pages of our introduction, Freud observes, in yet other cases, one feels justified in maintaining the belief that a loss of this melancholic kind occurred, but one cannot see clearly what it is that has been lost, and it is all the more reasonable to suppose that the patient cannot consciously perceive what he has lost either. This indeed might be so even if the patient is aware of the loss, which has given rise to his melancholia, but only in the sense that he knows whom he has lost, but not what he has lost in him. Freud tells us that the depression often accompanying melancholia is extremely dangerous, characterized by the tendency to suicide. Here we might add, suicide may not merely be physical, as in Caucasia, it may also manifest in the psychical erasure of one's identity, a self-imposed exile and exclusion, the effacing of a particular racial, sexual, or gender identity marks the emergence of a precarious social and psychic life. National Melancholia For Asian Americans and other people of color, suspended assimilation into mainstream culture may involve not only debilitating personal consequences, ultimately it also constitutes the foundation for a type of national melancholia, a collective national haunting with destructive effects. In Caucasia, the ambivalence characterizing the narrator's passing into whiteness leaves her with a constant and eerie feeling of contamination. Writing about the nature of collective identifications, Freud notes in Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego, in a group, every sentiment and act is contagious and contagious to such a degree that an individual readily sacrifices his personal interest to the collective interest. This is an aptitude very contrary to his nature, and of which a man is scarcely capable, except when he makes a part of a group. Our analysis insists on a consideration of what happens when the demand to sacrifice the personal to collective interest 
is accompanied not by inclusion in, but rather exclusion from, the larger group. It reorients psychic problems of racial melancholia towards social problems concerning legal histories of whiteness as property and, in particular, exclusion laws and bars to naturalization and citizenship for Asian Americans as a type of property right. As we know, the formation of the U.S. nation-state entailed and continues to entail a history of institutionalized exclusions, legal and otherwise. Part of our introduction focused on the transatlantic slave trade and indigenous dispossession. Here, it is vital to consider the long history of legalized exclusion of Asian American immigrants and citizens alike. From Japanese internment and indefinite detention during World War II, to earlier exclusion acts legislated by Congress, brokered by the executive, and upheld by the judiciary against every Asian immigrant group. For example, from 1882 to 1943, Chinese immigrants experienced the longest legalized history of exclusion and bars to naturalization and citizenship. The first race-based exclusions in U.S. history To cite but one specific instance, in 1888, the U.S. Congress retroactively terminated the legal right of some 20,000 Chinese residents to re-enter the United States after visiting China. Those excluded from re-entry were also barred from recovering their personal property remaining in the country, underscoring the ways in which race, citizenship, and property were simultaneously managed by the state to control and restrict flows of both Asian labor and capital. This law was followed by a series of further exclusion laws, as well as accompanied by legislative acts against miscegenation and the ownership of private property, culminating in the National Origins Act, 1924, and the Tidings-McDuffie Act, 1934 which effectively halted all immigration from Asia for an indefinite period. As Temu Ruscola notes, at the very historical moment when the United States was pleased to refer to its China policy as open door, it hardly escaped the Chinese that the door swung one way only. Yet, in our multicultural and colorblind age, Few people remember this history of racially motivated discrimination against Asian Americans that laid the legal foundation for the emergence of the figure of the illegal immigrant and of alien citizenship preoccupying so much of political debate concerning immigration today. This history of exclusion is barely taught in universities or high schools, Indeed, colorblindness and the model minority myth demand a forgetting of these events of group discrimination in the name of abstract equality and individual meritocracy. A return to this history thus expands our prior analyses of race as relation and whiteness as property to consider how the legal mechanisms of citizenship have broadly functioned as a kind of restricted property right. 
For Asian immigrants, these mechanisms have mediated a long history of social exclusion and inclusion in U.S. law and society. Racial melancholia can be seen as one profound psychic effect marking these histories of legal exclusion from the nation-state and prohibitions from national belonging. Today, discourses of American exceptionalism and democratic myths of abstract equality and individualism demand a forgetting of these formative losses and exclusions, an enforced psychic amnesia that can return only as a type of repetitive national haunting, a type of negative or absent presence. The contemporary model minority stereotype that defines Asian Americans is both a product of and productive of this negative or absent presence. Asian American model minority discourse emerged in the post-war period after the lifting of legalized exclusion. In the wake of Cold War conflict, the U.S. civil rights movements and the reformation of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Mimicry, or the melancholic machine. Racial melancholia as psychic splitting and national disease opens on the interconnected terrains of mimicry, ambivalence, and the stereotype. In his seminal essay of Mimicry and Man, The Ambivalence of Colonial Discourse, Omi Baba describes the way in which a colonial regime compels the colonized subject to mimic Western ideals of whiteness. At the same time, this mimicry is also condemned to failure. Baba writes, Colonial mimicry is the desire for a reformed, recognizable other as a subject of a difference that is almost the same, but not quite. Which is to say that the discourse of mimicry is constructed around an ambivalence, In order to be effective, mimicry must continually reproduce its slippage, its excess, its difference. Almost the same, but not white. Baba locates and labels the social imperative to assimilate as the colonial structure of mimicry. He highlights not only the social performance, but also its inevitable built-in failure. This doubling of difference that is almost the same but not quite, almost the same but not white, results in ambivalence, which comes to define the failure of mimicry. Here we elaborate on Baba's observations of mimicry with its intrasubjective internalization into the psychic domain through the logic of racial melancholia. It is important to remember that As with Baba's analysis of mimicry in the colony, Freud marks ambivalence as one of melancholia's defining characteristics. In describing the genealogy of ambivalence in melancholia, Freud himself moves from the domain of the social to the realm of the psychic. He notes that the conflict due to ambivalence, which sometimes arises from real experience, sometimes more from constitutional factors, must not be overlooked among the preconditions of melancholia. According to Freud, melancholia not only traces an internalized pathological identification 
with what was once an external but now lost ideal. In this moving from outside to inside, we also get a strong sense of how social injunctions of mimicry configure individual psychic structures as split and diseased. The ambivalence that comes to define Freud's concept of melancholia is one that finds its origins and routes in social history. In colonial and racial structures impelling performative displays of mimicry and man. It is crucial to extend Baba's theories on colonial mimicry to the domestic landscape of race relations in the United States, a post-colonial nation itself, in order to consider how we might usefully explore this concept for Asian Americans. One potential site of investigations is the racial stereotype discussed above, the model minority myth. In an earlier essay titled The Other Question, Stereotype, Discrimination, and the Discourse of Colonialism, Baba aligns ambivalence and splitting with the stereotype, suggesting that the performance of mimicry and the phenomenon of the stereotype be considered together. The stereotype, Baba writes, is a form of knowledge and identification that vacillates between what is always in place, already known, and something that must be anxiously repeated. For it is the force of ambivalence that gives the colonial stereotype its currency. If we conceptualize the model minority myth as a privileged stereotype, through which Asian Americans appear as subjects in the contemporary social domain, then we gain a better understanding of how mimicry specifically functions as a material practice in racial melancholia. That is, Asian Americans are forced to mimic the model minority stereotype in order to be recognized by mainstream society, in order to be, in order to be seen at all, However, to the extent that this mimicry of the model minority stereotype functions only to estrange Asian Americans from mainstream norms and ideals, as well as from their own histories, mimicry can operate only as a melancholic process. As both a social and psychic malady, mimicry and the model minority myth distance Asian Americans from the mimetic ideals of the nation. For Asian Americans, mimicry is always a partial success, as well as a partial failure to assimilate into regimes of whiteness. Let us analyze this dynamic from yet another angle. Although Asian Americans are now largely thought of as model minorities, exemplifying the American dream, this stereotype of material success is partial because it is configured primarily as economic achievement. In spite of extreme poverty in various Asian American communities, rather than social or cultural belonging, the putative success of the model minority subject comes to mask the limits of his political representation and agency. It covers over her inability to gain full and well-rounded subjectivities, to be politicians, athletes, artists, and activists, 
for example, to be recognized as a typical American, to invoke the exact title of Jish Jen's novel from 1991. To occupy the model minority position, Asian American subjects must therefore submit to a model of economic rather than political and cultural legitimation. To this day, widespread social and parental pressures often dictate that Asian American students must opt for safe, professional, and upwardly mobile careers, doctor, engineer, lawyer, often at the expense of individual desires and psychic well-being, doing well versus feeling well. They must not contest the dominant order of things. They must not rock the boat or draw attention to themselves. It is often difficult for our Asian American patients and students to articulate or to acknowledge their desires, as the model minority stereotype demands not only an enclosed but also a passive self-sufficiency and compliance. Drawing from Jacques Lacan's idea of the subject as a desiring subject, Antonio Viego has described a similar prioritizing of needs over desires in the context of Latino immigration. He describes this process as the psychic production of a dead subject, the creation of a subject dead to his or her desires. Insofar as both social and parental pressures emphasize needs over desires, necessity over extravagance in Sao Lin Wang's elegant formulation, melancholia and the death drive cannot be far behind. The model minority stereotype also delineates Asian Americans as academically successful but rarely well-rounded, well-rounded in Tasek comparison to a normative white student body. Here is another example of Baba's concept of mimicry as nearly successful imitation. This not quite successful performance attempts to cover over that gap, the failure of well-roundedness, as well as that unavoidable ambivalence resulting from this tacit comparison in which the Asian American student is seen as lacking and not fully assimilated. This social failure incites a psychic ambivalence that characterized, characterizes the racialized subject's identifications with dominant ideals of whiteness as pathological. This is an ambivalence that opens upon the landscape of melancholia and depression for many Asian American students. Those Asian Americans who do not fit into the model minority stereotype are altogether erased from, are not recognized by, mainstream society. Like Kingston's grandfather and Chinamen, they are often rejected by their own families as well. The difficulty of negotiating this unwieldy stereotype is that unlike most negative stereotypes of African Americans, the model minority myth is considered to be a positive representation a model of social achievement and exceptionalism. In this regard, not only mainstream society, but also Asian Americans themselves become attached to and divided by its seemingly admirable qualities.
without sufficiently recognizing its liabilities, what the political theorist Wendy Brown describes as a wounded attachment. According to Baba in its doubleness, the stereotype, like mimicry, creates a gap embedded in an unrecognized structure of ambivalence. In Jen's Typical American, for instance, we encounter Ralph Chang, who chases the American dream through his attempts to build a fried chicken empire, the Chicken Palace. Eventually, the franchise fails, and the first A falls off the Chicken Palace sign, which becomes Chicken P. Lace. This falling off is the linguistic corollary to the gap in the American dream that Ralph unsuccessfully mines. Perhaps it is in this gap, in its emptiness, that melancholia emerges and comes to inhabit. It is also where the negotiation between mourning and melancholia is staged.